0: Our guest for this episode is Chris Salisbury, author of Wild Nights Out. He joins us to share his work acclimating people of all ages to nature through experiences and encounters in a world shrouded by the dark, so we may do the same for others in our lives, whether as professional educators, parents, or community members. Throughout the interview, Chris shares ways to find and experience nature all around us and extends an invitation so that we can discover or rediscover the joy, majesty, and mystery of the night. Enjoy this conversation with Chris, and I'll join you again after.
1: It was a long time in the cooking, Wild Nights Out. It took the national lockdown here in the UK to afford me just enough time to get it done. So every winter I'd promised myself to write that book for about 14 years So it goes back really its provenance to a time when I was running Wild Nights Out as an event for Devon Wildlife Trust, who are a local wildlife charity, part of a national network. And as education officer there, we invited school children out onto these events on our nature reserves called Wild Nights Out to give them a sort of immersive experiential time to connect with the natural world and to learn some things about it and make acquaintance with the place so I did hundreds of those actually over 7 years and that's where I I kind of got myself properly acquainted and sort of gained some literacy in lurking in the dark that was an intensive apprenticeship guiding children into the night learning everything i could about what was likely to show up in the nighttime and curating Different ways to make acquaintance with the dark and the nighttime. And that really continued when we left the Wildlife Trust, sort of got ourselves off that short leash and set up wildwise to enable us to extend invitations for longer, to go deeper further on courses and now training events in this sort of broader field. So the post the wildlife trust really came out of a sort of unexpected background, maybe, in that I had no formal qualifications to qualify me for that job. But I did have a theatre degree and I did have a theatre practice and a professional experience that gave me a good grounding in, you know, communication and presentation skills, and interpersonal skills and the creative process thinking imaginatively. And it turns out it was a perfect kind of foundation for education work. So it was never a question, or never an answer to a question, what do you want to be when you grow up? But you know, like that old Machado poem goes, you make the road by walking. So I sort of stumbled into it, but found this sort of relish for it, and in particular, this relish for the nighttime and these night walks. So there you go. That's a a brief
0: summary. And that's where I wanted to have this conversation with you about Wild Nights Out, is that I recall these very deep childhood memories of spending time running through the hills and forests of Western Maryland and West Virginia here in the United States, part of northern Appalachia, and getting to see the deep, dark night sky and in some ways kind of taking it for granted as a child and then years later and then years later when i was a scout we went to this high adventure camp where we were living on an island for a couple of days that were many many miles from shore and getting to talk to some of the other scouts from all around the country and how they had never had those kinds of deep nature experiences because it just wasn't a possibility with where they lived being in cities and that, you know, they were building fires in a fire pit in their scout leader's backyard and then setting up their tents there because that's where they were. And now here they were on this island being able to look up and see the whole of the night sky because there was no night pollution and that it was so dark that we could see satellites as they zipped by. And recalling these memories in the moment and the way that those experiences throughout my younger days were so formative, I'm wondering if you could share with us some of the connections that you experienced not only for yourself, but also with the children and families that you were working with by taking them out into the dark.
1: Well, endless excursions in the dark with diverse client groups I mean there's. Obviously not just one oh, simple answer to that question because everyone has their own experience. And the bottom line is, for so many, is the fear of the dark, of course. And the trepidation is very widespread, needless to say, because we've uh, lacked acquaintance and familiarity with the dark because we live in you know brightly lit kind of homes. And in fact, the default setting is as soon as it gets a little darker is to flick on an electric light switch And continue the activities of the day, which of course, if you're on camp, you just can't do. You are kind of beckoned and bidden by the changing light to do something different, to alter your kind of rhythms. Your basic biology records the fact that light levels are diminishing. There are certain kind of chemical kind of processes that go on in a human body that prepares for that phase and moving towards sleep and rest of course but it's a time when the fire gets kindled you know and the impact of the campfire is at its strongest when it's all kind of flickering flames burning the darkness from the sky and shadows and just that ambience and atmosphere and of course the kind of community and village half of the you know, the gathering space around the fire where we're kind of together, we're in that very natural sort of geometry of a circle and it affords all of the sort of sharings, reflections of the day, the stories and the songs, so a very special time. But the sort of practice, I suppose, as an outdoorsman has been to devise ways and means to make better acquaintance with the dark and there are just as many adults as children who are terrified i mean quite literally have this sort of acrophobic fear of the dark which needs some you know attention really and and sort of delicate holding because perhaps it's uh, adult women who have a sort of terror of what might lurk out there just feeling very vulnerable and very threatened children with very active imaginations that uh, fantasize about all of the sort of ghouls and ghosties that are out there waiting to get them. So we play games. We stick together on a night walk, perhaps if it's a, a night walk to look at the creatures, the bats and the owls, for example, on the trail, or we play games in the night, get them sneaking around and playing, really, which has enabled a lot of people over the years to get over a fear of the dark, and particularly with youngsters. They're so busy with the fun of the game, sneaking games, you know, the classic sort of hiding out, not being caught and not being seen sort of stuff, which is just very ancient, isn't it? We've been playing those games for thousands and thousands of years. So um, lots of that sort of stuff to gain that acquaintance. And it evolves. And life on camp, if anyone's lucky enough to spend more than a night, a few nights a week, of course, we, we adjust and we remember perhaps some of our, you know, lineage, heritage, ancestry, given that the 99.9% of the time humans were living with that natural kind of tide of light and dark and getting to know it. And I think, you know, the nighttime just has, in its constituency, really, lots to offer for those who feel curious enough or intrepid enough to step over the threshold. And, you know, one of the simplest things is a night sky, you know, away from the artificial light pollution, which now affects 99% of people living in Europe and America in some way are compromised by light pollution. But stepping away from the stronger light pollution of towns and cities, perhaps to see the stars for the first time, that's a feeling of awe and wonder that I think probably is the same for anyone to behold that confection of stars. Even going back in history, I, I like to think our ancestors would have had the same kind of feeling, really, of being kind of humbled and just enraptured by by a starry sky at night. So it has mystery and it has wonderment. It has lots of allurement. Of course, lots of creatures show up at night as well. Sometimes they can be very obliging with a few acts of persuasion to reveal themselves at night in ways that by daytime it's harder to to bring them out. Yeah, so there's lots in it and uh, there's been lots of responses, lots of reactions, but I don't think we've had anybody who's really turned on their heel and gone home because they couldn't face the dark. It's been a usually a a progression for everyone who comes to experience it.
0: That by using these games and activities, bringing people together and getting them involved. Before they know it, the lights are out and they've immersed themselves in the dark and are comfortable in ways they might not have been even an hour before. And you bet. the safety in
1: numbers too. Don't forget when we're in a group situation, that's actually very kind of reassuring for many. So they don't feel that fear. It's more when they're they're invited to act maybe on a little sit spot by their, uh, you know, on their own at night that would be where the real edge is for folks. And that's not something clearly we would be inviting anyone on on the first night on camp. But at the right time, you know, it's a wonderful thing just to experience the night like that, even though you're in a sort of wider context of a group activity, just to sort of have the feeling of sitting on your own, maybe in the forest at night, or out on the hillside, just gazing at the moon. These are quite seminal life experiences, really, and very connecting to the sort of greater mysteries and the, the sort of wonder of, of this miracle, this life on Earth, you know, this little spaceship of ours hurtling through space in a sort of endless universe. So, you know, these are peak experiences, I would say, and, of course, they're unforgettable.
0: And that memory that I shared with you about being on that island so far away from shore, even though that took place nearly 30 years ago, and yet all these years later, I'm sharing it with you because it still sticks with me. And that's where your book and your work speak to me, is how that moment had so much meaning to me by being there so far away from home, because I was, I think, 1,200 miles from home at that point, laying on a beach, looking up at the sky, seeing stars that looked a little different from the ones that I normally see. And in that moment, it created this feeling of mystery and magic in the world. And there I was underneath the canopy of heaven, and I felt so small in the wider world. But it wasn't scary or frightening in any way. It was this beautiful, wonder-filled moment.
1: You just can't fail, really, to be humbled by that perspective, that sense of, Not just ourselves being so small in a vast universe, but the planet and the kind of singularity of this planet Earth with all of its teeming, you know, profusion of life just being a miracle and a blessing. And of course, as a practitioner of these experiences, there are narratives, you know, that can accompany such an experience, you know, narratives of the stars, you know, that we've been telling each other as humans for thousands of years in all the different cultures, you know, this sort of kind of drama that we project onto as the stars move through you know the heavens at different times of year this very real calendar and clock and compass of the night sky that was so important to kind of live by really to know when to plant the crops for example and i do think that the skill set for the educator you know needs to have a little bit of that narrative in it so the night so conducive for telling these stories you know that's around the campfire too when we gather, and, and that's how traditional cultures, of course, would get through the winter, um, because their version of screen time was to look up into the heavens and spend time beholding that, or it was around the campfire, the outdoor telly, and hear each other tell stories and, and hear the old storytellers tell the old stories. And I think uh, the, you know, the nighttime just has a particular helpful context, you know, for that kind of mystery. Uh, that kind of wandering, that kind of imaginative exercise, which, let's face it, we have to sort of project quite a bit and activate our imagination in the night because we can't see so very much. So, um, you know, it's very helpful.
0: For educators or parents who would like to introduce children to the outdoor world at night, do you have any Particular processes that you use or suggestions you would have on where to begin this introduction? I
1: suppose it's very dependent on the context, isn't it? Whether you can see a night sky. You know, if you're in a city, for example, not much point really in going out stargazing unless you can make a trip and excursion out to a dark sky area. Even in cities, there's wildlife. You know, in Britain here, we have a lot that's going on around at night in the cities, particularly things like foxes. The red fox has done very well urbanizing, colonizing towns and cities. And at night time is when they're active so they can be seen. There are still kind of owls about in the fringes and margins of the towns and the cities. So there are certainly wildlife experiences to have. For many, you know, it might be a case of just going out with a pair of binoculars and beholding the moon. To see the moon through a pair of even quite basic and simple binoculars is absolutely breathtaking. It's just a moment. Even if you can't behold a whole starry sky, you can certainly see a moon rise, you know, a full moon, or even better, you know, when the moon is a a sort of crescent-shaped, when it's waxing and waning and it's in that lovely crescent position, those contours and craters of the moon show up even more. So that would be one, one kind of thing to introduce the nighttime as a realm of kind of, you know, wonderment. Many will have back gardens in the cities or parks. And if they're accompanied by an adult or a few, can get together and they can rummage around, particularly in the summer months with little torches, just to find innumerable kind of mysteries because there are things that are very active at night, even in the very small level, you know, the critters and the creatures that lurk in the leaf litter and that are under the stones and in the old rotting little bits of log. And it's great fun to go on like a mini beast safari and then look up these crazy life cycle stories, you know, that accompany many of them because they really are fascinating and particularly now chiming with this cultural appreciation of invertebrates and as we're losing them in so many numbers, their sort of value is kind of you know going up and it just chimes quite nicely with just suddenly how important they are. I do also think that if there is a park or a kind of garden space or just a somewhere that represents a little bit of a kind of otherness that isn't indoors and brightly lit, you know, it's a simple practice, but this business of just going out, and you know, for 20 minutes just sitting and not really doing anything, just listening in, recording the sounds that you hear, of just as a sort of kind of pause in the every kind of day flow of activity and routines, a sort of little symbolic step out. And it's an act of mindfulness, of course, which is quite the fashion these days to cultivate these kind of practices, is just to sit quietly observe and listen and just take in the night a sit spot practice would be something else and apart from that certainly in britain around the towns and cities there are many organizations to do with particular wildlife actually things like bat groups for example who are very busy leading little walks and doing little talks and things outdoors that you can join in on too the wildlife trusts are a network all over britain and they're often quite busy in the cities actually where there are surprising amounts of wildlife stuffed into the margins and the crevices and the cracks and, you know, the little kind of set-aside bits of green in between the parks and what have you. So, yeah, you'd be surprised. And nocturnal wildlife is, is always captivating and interesting.
0: And that's where this doesn't have to be a deep, formal encounter every time. We could just take a couple minutes at the end of the day.
1: No, you're right. It can be a simple little thing. Even just the business of pausing between getting home off the bus or out of the car and that little moment taking the outside and what's around. And and if you can, as I say, see see a star in the sky or a bit of moon phase, you can just sort of clocking the cycle of the moon and where it's at,
0: what it's doing, this sort of thing. Even just poking around in the verge or a planter by the street side as we make our way to our front door can be a little experience.
1: Well, it could do, you know, and certainly if there's kids about, it's a sort of stuff, you know, they're, they're naturally very curious. It's one of the pieces, isn't it, to kind of be aware of as an educator in terms of mentoring that nature connection is that joint attention has been shown to be a critical in a young child's life, to participate in the discovery to model the curiosity and just, yeah, get busy having a little rummage around. And as you say, it
0: just can be for a few short minutes, can't it? Some of my time is spent working with homeschooling families and others who are looking for ways to move beyond the formal structured education system. And part of our conversation is how do we continue to encourage that curiosity. And that's what I like about what you share with us through these games and activities and other options, both in our conversation today and in your book, is that we can make meaningful educational learning moments a part of our entire day, a part of our entire life, from the time we get up until the time we go to bed after dark.
1: Well, that's right. And certainly from a professional context, there's been, a, I don't know how it is in the States, but certainly in Britain over the last 20 years, an awful lot of books have gotten written on the theme of environmental education in terms of like activity books. You know, really an incredible amount, but nothing actually by nighttime in a way, that's symbolic, I think, of a culture that has somewhat exiled themselves from the nighttime. And often, you know, whether it's a forest school or a home education sort of outdoor classroom or whatever it is by day, it's only on the kind of rare excursions to get out on camp that the night starts to become available to explore. So I know that you have that tradition in the States of going out on summer camp. And we certainly have it here, too, in a different way people going off on and camping out. It's very popular in the summer months here just to go camping. and, And so everyone's going to experience the night in a different way. And this book is meant to be a little bit of a handbook, a little bit of prompt and provocation to enjoy and relish what the night has to offer in different
0: ways. And I think about the books that I read during graduate school on environmental education or the activity books that I have on my bookshelves now My recollection is that they don't deal with the night. Instead, it's like Richard Lowe's Last Child in the Woods, which is a great book. Even there, it's more about getting kids outside with that idea of, like, after breakfast, you tell them to go outside, not to come home until lunch. Then after lunch, they're to go outside again, come back around dinner time. But then around dinner time is when... Family spends time together, and it's not necessarily outside. Though I will have to go back and revisit Richard's book and some of the others that I have to double-check that. But in the moment, yeah, I can't recall nighttime-focused activities.
1: Maybe one exception to that, Scott, would be um, just looking back over over the years that uh, Steve Van Maitre, who wrote and pioneered the Earth Education marvellous sort of treasure trove of processes and programs and activities, Perth Education Institute, based in America. So he has scattered throughout many of his programs, which go from early years right through to teenage years. He has quite a few sort of nocturnal and nighttime activities and little sequences. I've leaned into a couple of those to include as part of my book. So that's definitely one resource to go to and he's a very impressive practitioner and writer on the subject of environmental education and really has a lot to offer he's just actually published last year the finally an activity book i don't know if you've come across it called it's about the earth walk activities the sort of standalone short kind of little activities that you can kind of you know mix and match and design little kind of excursions into into the natural world with you know, little bags of props and things. Quite marvelous. There's about 70 activities in there. But it's, that's a, a really good uh, place to look. But you'll get a few nighttime things in there as well. Very creative and very inventive.
0: And that's where many of the authors who were influential on my thought and work were people like David Orr and David Sobel. But they were looking at how we can restructure the educational system and help children to reconnect with the natural world to overcome things like this idea of ecophobia or being afraid of the natural world. But I'll, yeah, I'll definitely have to check that out.
1: Yeah, Steve Van Maitre, he wrote a seminal text called A New Beginning, where he got a lot of things off his chest about critiquing environmental education, how it was dreadfully sort of compartmental and bits and pieces no one was really understanding how the basic sort of functions, ecological concepts, how this sort of earth functions. And and he really nailed it, actually, in terms of sort of designing programs that had magic and wonder and were very inclusive and participatory and immersive, at the same time doing lots of learning about the carbon cycle or the soil cycle or something or water cycle. So quite brilliant stuff, if you haven't come across it. And um, not so popularized because he was quite assiduous about not taking kind of sponsorship where he didn't trust the source of money. So that did slow things down a little bit. Anyway, I refer you and your viewers and readers to his work, the Institute for Earth Education.
0: For educators who are listening to this, and I know there are many, do you have any recommendations on safety procedures or processes, even things that, They might do in the organizational pre-planning if they wanted to put together and offer a night walk to children or families, whether that's through a public school, a nature center, a forest school, or anything like that. Because as we've spoken about throughout this conversation, we're not all necessarily well-versed or ready to go into the outdoor world let alone to do so at night.
1: Well, yeah, and there's quite a few tips, actually, and advice included in the book. But it's, you know, one of the key things to bear in mind is around not being over-ambitious and not going too far. You know, the distances traveled by night really do shift and change our experience. You really don't need to go very far in the nighttime. It would partly depend on the... On the terrain, if you're in the forest, for example, we're talking about very short sort of little distances, really. You travel slower and the night, you know, in a way is conducive to stopping, pausing, exploring a little bit. So I would say don't be over ambitious. I would say get to know the trail by day is a key kind of safety thing. The usual kind of Sort of criteria apply to leading groups in the outdoors, of course, which are generic to that role in terms of having it first aid and and a certain amount of experience. Certainly, in terms of leading into any wildlife encounters, you know, you have to kind of stake out the territory, first of all. You have to know it's going to be there if you're promising that they're not always that reliable. So, a lot of the night walks that I lead will go and look for some different things in some different places so that I can be sure at least there'll be something that's going to show up. But there's no you know, substitute actually for just preparing the ground, really, and just making sure that you know the place you're going to. You know it well by day. You know where the sort of hazards are on the trail, for example, and that you're not over-ambitious with too many people on the walk. So start with very small kind of numbers to gain your own affinity with the process. Uh, what else would I would I say? I would just include a bit of enrichment, you know, in the experience too, because something you can always rely on is your own ability to tell a little story or offer up a little poem or design it so that you can come together and sit around a fire, for example, as a finishing point. Or maybe you could introduce a bit more atmosphere with some candlelight if you can't have a fire just to make an experience of it. Because if you are out on the trail and you're going to look for evening loose and owl calling, for example, and it's just one of those nights where the weather wasn't that conducive or for whatever reason, they're just not showing up. There's always something else you've got, if you like, in your back pocket. I often take props, actually, with me. It's a big box that I have. I call my death box because I've found all sorts of component parts of creatures and uh, bits of nature over the years. And I've sort of preserved them and I've I've found them to be very useful to sort of pull out, put in my night walk bag and look, here's a wing of a tawny owl. Feel how soft it is. And Why do you think it's so soft? You know, this design is very specific for flying quietly at night. Or maybe I've got, because I know some people who work with uh, surveying bats. So sometimes I've got preserved little dried out little bat, which is an incredible thing to pull out, especially if you're seeing them flapping around, which is quite hard to follow them with your eyes. But there it is in the hand under the light of a torch. So those sort of little things too. And in Britain, we're not heading out into territory where we are not the apex predator, for example. And I know in the States, you know, that's, uh, there's a different context to operate in there. So I'm not going to advise you from this corner of the world, really, on, uh, on just how you manage the threats that lurk, the very real threats that might lurk in your terrain. I'm just thinking off the top of my head of things like uh, bears and uh, mountain lion, or or even snakes, perhaps that you have out there. Britain is very benign in that sense; it's very safe, you know, to wander out on the trail, which
0: is a blessing and a curse, of course. So then, as I follow the arc of your work, it started with small, short excursions, walks, and things like that, with maybe a handful of children or a couple of families but since then has grown into larger and larger groups, as well as longer experiences. As you've mentioned, you know, being out and being at camp and having sit spots at night and things like that. How has that changed the opportunities and experiences for people, both children and adults?
1: Well, on a very personal level, It's been an opportunity to embed myself deeper in the work, to bear witness to the extraordinary transformations that happen given a lot more exposure to the natural world. So, living on camp, for example, for seven days, seven nights, living in a kind of human village, cooking over the campfire and doing these various immersive and connective routines. I mean, you can't underestimate the level of change and challenge that's in the recipe, really, because it's a bit like remembering ourselves, our deeper humanity, a bit like a kind of, oh, this is how it's meant to be. And that's been an absolute blessing and a privilege, I guess, year by year, an ongoing revelation, just how yeah, deep the experience goes. It's almost like a kind of soulful process. Even if our study is, you know, maybe we might be into the tracking, for example, just be on the trail with that intense focus. All the while, you know, all of this whole kind of recipe of the wild world is seeping in through the pores, you see. And I think that it starts to disturb something quite deep, I mean, in a good way, not a, well, can be troubling, of course, because it can represent quite a challenge to kind of how, how one is living one's life in the everyday. So, um, I mean, that's what I would say that would characterize the kind of major sort of difference and me in my role as guide, of course, it's taken me there too and to be part of that and I'm fed as much as I'm feeding, of course, by being there too. So I think that's how I would, in a general way, characterize the difference between these sort of quite kind of perfunctory way of initially getting involved and just doing little short little activities, you know, popping out for a couple of hours here and there and and those are all kind of great and they're wholesome and good stuff. But as you say, when it when it goes further and wilder and deeper, then I think extraordinary things start to happen. And and people do. They do start to question what they're doing and why they're doing it. And students will testify to major life transitions that follow. That shows up quite regularly.
0: So that's interesting. In addition to your own book, which is fantastic, and I recommend folks pick up if they're listening to this, are there any other people, books, organizations, or resources you would suggest or recommend for people who want to deepen their understanding or practice when it comes to the nighttime world, environmental education, or any of the other aspects that we've spoken about today?
1: No, I'm not privy
0: to... All of the
1: kind of services and provision in the USA, but there's—I know that in every state there are organisations that are all about nature connection in its different forms. So I'll mention a couple because I've worked with them specifically. So there is the Wilderness Awareness School. This was the school set up by John Young, and is in based in Washington State. Who do some absolutely marvellous work because I work with uh, uh, one of the one of the team who comes over here as well to do some work for me. John Young himself runs the Eight Shields Institute, which is a whole other kind of domain to look into. And that is spread out because he's done lots of training over the years, spread out all over America, Eight Shields Institute. And the program that comes from that is the Art of Mentoring. That's a very big, coherent, sort of wider, broader village building program. But at its foundation, it's Nature Connection. And so there's some very interesting work that's going on there. And it's very accessible in that it is designed for however old you are. There's stuff for kids. There's stuff for the family. There's stuff even if you're an elder, an older person. So uh, that is perhaps a one-stop shop, you could say. In my own sort of country, I'm, of course, I'm networked in really with an awful lot of the organisations that provide so much of the eldering of natural history, the experts who can inform us about whatever, bats and badgers and owls and the societies that take you out stargazing and all of that. There's quite a bit in the book about things like storytelling. And so there are places to go to practice your narrative skills. If you're an educator, of course, that's in a more formal kind of Uh, realm of traditional storytelling. In America, there's one other organization perhaps to mention because it's influenced me as well. Joseph Cornell used to visit Britain quite a bit in the 80s and the 1990s to promote books that he called Sharing Nature, Sharing Nature with Children. And he set up a foundation that's been going about 40 years, I think, called the Sharing Nature Foundation. And his style and approach is kind of around the nature games sort of angle and designing short little programs, day long, perhaps programs to connect young people, particularly kids, I would say mostly the primary age, which that's what we would call sort of six to 12 year olds, mostly, but very conducive for family. And uh, he wrote these books and they they gained a wider appeal because I think families picked them up and thought, oh, I can use this sort of stuff and we can play this in our back garden or we can get a few families together and explore some of these ideas. Simple, easy to use. So that's the work of Joseph Cornell as well. And he's influenced quite a few educators over here too. So there's a few there, but there's really no substitute for gaining your own literacy with the night particularly and just spending a bit of time giving yourself that little gift stepping over that threshold heading out just to you know not have one wild wilderness epic adventure but just take yourself out for half an hour take yourself out for a little night stroll notice all the things that are happening to you your sensations the difference when you come back the kind of you marinate in the whole kind of nocturnal recipe and you, you are qualitatively sort of shifted your perceptions and your kind of dreaming, your thought processes, everything sort of just subtly sort of shifts. So good to track that and good to get what's
0: out there. And in the few minutes we have remaining, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? Do I have any final thoughts? Goodness me.
1: Well, it might be a little kind of, teasing kind of riddle because here we are talking about the night and the dark and we all got this sort of understanding of why it's dark but actually I'm bound to ask at this point now don't take that for granted or at least don't assume you know what is obvious so if I ask your listeners why is it dark that could set them on the trail of somewhere quite interesting because it's not the answer you think it would be. I'm afraid it's not just the fact that the sun goes down and there is this lovely sort of pyramid of night that sits on the other side of the Earth. <clears throat> the Earth wears this sort of nightcap, really, and while it's in darkness, this nightcap that stretches a long way up to its point, about 800,000 miles, in fact, and about 8,000 miles diameter on the surface of the earth that's our kind of night shape and the sun's on the other side but it turns out it's actually not the reason why it's dark so it's a bit of a teaser to finish and of course <laughs> you can find the answer in my book but uh, it's a it's a it's a great little riddle actually confounding too and you might try and sort of just think your way through that and see if you can arrive at another A very logical answer, actually, but it is elusive, I warn you. The reason why it's dark is not because the sun just disappears over the horizon. You'd think so, but it's actually not. So there you go. I'll leave you with that.
0: And that was Chris Salisbury, leaving us with a mystery to explore about the dark. Chris and his work are at wildwise.co.uk and his book, Wild Nights Out, is available from Chelsea Green Publishing. You'll find links to all of that and more in the show notes. What I like about Chris's work, for anyone looking to create more nature connection, personally with children, friends, and family, or as a professional, is the many ways you can readily use the materials found in Wild Nights Out to create a variety of experiences. Choose an individual activity and you have a short experience, which a family can fit in before bedtime, or a teacher can give as an assignment to send home with students. Adding multiple activities together into a longer curriculum, you can quickly have everything you need to fill a week or weekend with wonder, extending well past when the lights go out and the stars and moon emerge. Have you read Wild Nights Out? Or do you have your own favorite nighttime activities? Share your thoughts on these or anything else that comes to mind by leaving a comment in the show notes at the permaculturepodcast.com. or if you'd like to connect with me one-on-one while you're at the website in addition to enjoying the archives that go back to 2011 you can click contact to reach me directly. Until the next time inhabit the wild wonder of nights out while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.